Coming to you from Hyde Park Community United Methodist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, it's Ask Science Mike Live! He's got questions, he's got answers, even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them, but he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life with absolutely no qualifications whatsoever. This week is a live episode. The questions are unscreened, the answers unrehearsed, and completely unfact-checked. Please use Google liberally if you think an answer is questionable. A couple of things just as we start the show tonight. One, every time I do an Ask Science Mike Live, I get a ton of emails saying, why don't you come to blank, blank being the city you're in. And I absolutely will, if you invite me to do so, go to AskScienceMike.com and contact me via the website form on my speaking page. Also, I want to let you know that we've started something new and kind of weird with the liturgists, which is video workshops, the first two of which are on meditation and navigating deconstruction via the Enneagram. If that sounds interesting to you, check out shop.theliturgist.com for more information. But for now, We've got a show to do, so let's get it started. I needed to go first because I'm shaking and I won't be able to enjoy this if I don't get it over with. Sure. Um, my name's Jamie Pelfrey. I live outside of Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I wanted to thank you. Um, you are that famous person that like, oh my gosh, he's on stage. Um, you and Michael, because um, I was raised in conservative evangelicalism for 35 years of my life. That was my educational background. Um, I was homeschooled for most of it um, and then went to Bible college and seminary and um, always was a skeptic, always had a lot of questions, was told to keep my mouth shut or you're a girl or you're just a kid or um, you don't have your degree yet or you know, you name it, um, I was told it. And so it wasn't until I became a stay-at-home mom that I actually had this space and no one in my ear telling me not to ask the questions. Um, and then my niece and nephew passed away within six weeks of each other. Mm. And suddenly, um, all of those questions had nowhere else to go except in all of my emotions and all of my anger. I have finally kind of finished processing through some of that and going through deconstruction without being in a context of constant evangelicalism we went to, started going to a United Methodist church where they didn't really care as much if I didn't agree with everything. Um, much healthier place for me. Um, and so in the last six months, I've been reformulating my blog because I love to write um, to be specifically about post-evangelicalism and deconstruction. Um, and I've started a group for people in this space. And so my question, I guess it's kind of a faith-life intersect question, um, is as a podcaster, uh, one of my goals is to eventually start a podcast. I bought all the equipment because I was excited, and now I'm like, <laughs> no, what do I do? <laughs> so from your experience walking into this and now being seasoned and famous, um, how do you even start sharing your story via blog, writing, podcasting in a safe way um, and in a way that creates a safe space um, because that's one of my my main goals is to make it a very safe place for people who have been wounded by the mm. church. So I spent like 16 years in advertising and PR where I learned a lot of tricks about 
creating insecurities in people so you can get them to buy products they don't need. I loved it so much I left the ad business, right? I loved the people. I loved the work. I didn't like the, the basic function, which so often was create insecurity or fear so you can sell the solution to it. I get asked that a lot, and uh, I've had to think about it a lot because this thing I'm doing didn't start as I'm going to be a public figure or a podcaster. Uh, the animating energy of my work at first was grief. And that grief came from growing up in a religious tradition and being ejected from it. Uh, although actually my work started before that. I was a Southern Baptist when I wrote a blog post called It's Not About Chicken that came out on Chick-fil-A Day where I as a Southern Baptist deacon said I thought there was no problem with same-sex marriage universally loved in the Baptist church and evangelicalism, <laughs> that post. Then I got in a Facebook fight with church staff about the age of the earth. Solid work. I mean, really bringing people together right out of the gate. Um, why would I do that as a person who hates conflict? Because I had this sense from first intuition and then from sociological data that an incredible number of people sitting in pews feel lonely, isolated, and afraid because in some way their beliefs about God are out of sync with their religious community. One of the earliest and most shocking pieces of data I saw out of one uh, small survey was that one of the best predictors for people undergoing a faith transition, that means like leaving one form of faith to another, which by the way, 45% of people in America will do at some point in their life. It's not a fringe thing. The best predictor was a difference in the belief of evolution via natural selection. That was a better predictor than same-sex marriage or views on abortion or other social hot points. Evolution was the best predictor. And I thought, what a ridiculous thing to have people lose their families over. Like, did we come from monkeys or not? Well, no, nobody thinks we came from monkeys. We think that humans and, humans and monkeys share a common ancestors. So we're, first of all, we're fighting about something that doesn't exist, whatever. So I started doing this work because I knew other people were having questions about the Bible, like I'd had, and other people were going to church while not believing in God, maybe even identifying as an atheist, but they were too afraid of rejection and being ostracized to talk about it. And anytime you had people saying, I was an atheist in church, it became this ridiculous sales pitch for Jesus, where they described atheism in no way that resembled real world, real world atheism or atheists, and then proposed simplistic solutions to non-existent theological quandaries and said, I found my way back to faith. And I was determined, I'm not here to convince atheists to believe in God. I'm here to make it safe for atheists to be who they are. So what I discovered was animating my work was an understanding that the way I have suffered exists in other people, and I am determined that those other people suffer less. What can I do to address their suffering through my experiences? 
So that started as a blog and Facebook posts that really only people I knew in Tallahassee, Florida saw. And as I would write those posts, I'd say, listen, if you're going to church every Sunday and you have things you're afraid to talk about, I'd love to listen to you. Send me a message, send me a text, we'll go to lunch. And before I knew it, every day for lunch, every day of the week, I went to somebody else, usually, often pastors or, or leaders in local churches that didn't even go to my church, where they would tell me this thing they were struggling with. And I would offer absolutely no advice or solution. None. I would just listen and say, I understand. And I'd love to just keep listening if you need someone to listen to. And uh, it turns out that doesn't scale especially well. That's about 20 people a month. And if the demand is higher than 20 people a month, you start booking too far out. It seems ridiculous to offer vulnerability online. And they're like, can we go to lunch? I'm like, absolutely. What's your calendar like in seven months on Tuesday? <laughs> Doesn't work. So about that time, I met Michael Gunger and realized he was one of those people. And we decided to scale. We started by releasing records on iTunes, which like dozens of people downloaded. And they, they cost a ton of money to make. They were a huge amount of work, and they reached less people than I was personally reaching through lunch dates. So didn't scale very well. So we said, what if we started a podcast, because they're easier to make than these records? Thinking like the same dozens of people, except the podcast took off. Do you see what happened? I didn't start with like, how am I going to talk to people? I started with what's the animating mission of my work? That was to address suffering to a community I knew existed. Now, it turns out, on accident, I was sort of addressing a community no one else was addressing because you had public skeptics and atheists who were more than happy to lead you out of religion, and you had religious people who were more than happy to lead you back to some form of faith, but there was nobody saying, I honestly don't care where you end up. I just don't want you to be alone during the transition. So that exploded, right? Because it turns out the fastest growing faith in America is no faith at all. And if there's anything that I get frustrated or tired about, there's still not very many people doing it. <laughs> so it sounds like you have this, this need, this emotional need to help others suffer less. It's a good place to start. But don't worry too much about the particular venue. Just see, start with who you know and start small and see where it goes. And honestly, there's a lot of days where I miss just going to lunch with people. So as the, the work has scaled, I feel so alienated by the celebritizing aspect. I, I, uh, I'm not into that. I'm not into celebrity culture at all, <laughs> uh, especially not in the church. And I've tried to make it obvious in my work that what I'm, I mainly care about is like authentically connecting with other people. And if you're like that, be careful, because it also means you tend to be terrible at taking care of yourself or establishing any form of boundaries. Uh, Jenny, my wife, was very into establishing boundaries once strangers started showing up at the front door to talk to me. She's like, what if, and hear me out, our address wasn't public? What if we just 
I was like, but these people are suffering. You know, because I, I, when, I, when I first started, I, I would get thousands of emails a week. And I got an email once from a gay student at a conservative seminary. And he said, uh, I was about to kill myself and I heard your podcast. So I'm, I'm sitting here ready to go, not doing it, don't know what to do. So I emailed him back. I'm like, what's your phone number? That was a great plan, by the way, because clearly I'm qualified to help someone in that state. So I call this person I don't know. I get up from dinner with my wife and children, and I go sit in my office for four hours. And he's still alive. It may not have gone that way. So the other thing is you need to be aware of your limitations as a person and what's appropriate. And for different people, these things are easier and more difficult. Some people are very easy with the limitations part, very, but like, oh, I'd love to be a celebrity. <laughs> and then other people, the boundary thing is tough. The, the biggest thing you've got to know, and for anyone who's thinking about this kind of platform work, honestly, whether it's even spiritual or not, Brene Brown would have to struggle with this, or anyone whose work affects people deeply. You can't actually help everyone, and you can't actually help anyone you can just be present as people wake up on their own. Hi, my name's uh, Jared. I'm actually from Lexington as well. Right on. Uh, hour and a half. Uh, had to come up here to see you tonight. Um, quick background on me. Um, when I was uh, 14, in an 11-month period, I found out my mom had a uh, crack cocaine addiction. Uh, I lost my grandfather. I found out my dad had a stage four pancreatic cancer and I lost him as well. Um, I was not raised in the church. I was living with my grandma at the time because uh, I'd been taken out of my mom's custody. And uh, I remember sitting there one night and um, very depressed. Teenage years are hard enough and that was a lot to deal with. Um, and uh, put a gun, gun in my mouth and uh, for whatever reason I didn't pull the trigger and uh, found church and youth ministry shortly thereafter, and it, it probably saved my life. Um, I had a very kind of basic faith at the beginning and stuff, and as I've gotten older, I've realized that it was more of a kind of fake fundamentalist thing, and I found you a couple of years ago when you did the interview with the Bad Christian Guys, mm -hmm. and so I've been following your work since then. My wife and I just uh, miscarried a child this past uh, July. Mm -hmm. We do have a, a son that's about to be three, though, and he's healthy and stuff, but... Uh, I just, I guess I have an issue dealing with grief in a healthy way, and uh, I just get, like, existential dread. Mm -hmm. I'll sit in the shower and be like, everyone I've cared about seems like they're dying around me. Um, you know, what is the point to this? Mm -hmm. Where is the hope in that? Mm. And I have great days with my son and my wife, and it doesn't hit me all the time, but I just, I, what would you say is in your experience through meditation and just your spiritual journey can help kind of focus on the positivity things. And in particular, I just uh, worry like it's not, what if it's not real? What if there's nothing after this? Hmm. Um, Cause I really want there to be something after this. Hmm. I want to be able to speak with and touch my daughter that I didn't get to mm -hmm. meet. And I want to see my dad. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I didn't really know what I lost uh, when I was a teenager. You just kind of think you know everything. And now I want to ask him about career stuff and just talk to him. So it's like every year I feel like I miss him more. And so what do you do to help find your, when you're having bad days, hope with the afterlife, maybe connecting with those we've lost. Hmm. So, Thank you. I want to honor like the sincerity and authenticity of your question. But I wonder if there's a couple things we could frame. Like you talk about a, a, a prior fundamentalism and then you label it fake. But the experience in your prior religion was probably very genuine. And in your question, took you through some difficult times. So I wonder something I had to learn, and it's not through meditation, my friend, it's through therapy. Um, something I had to learn was to appreciate what being a Baptist did for me as a person. But then also, what really terrible things being a Baptist did to me as a person. And one thing that's kind of like evangelical, especially conservative evangelical framing, often creates is a reticence to deal with depression, grief, or anger, because they're labeled as negative or even sinful parts of the human experience. But as I listen to your story, I hear a lot of tragedy. And frankly, if you think about it, if on the other side of lost family members and a painful loss and miscarriage, if your response is like, well, everything's okay, God is in control, that actually sounds kind of like sociopathic. How normal is it in times of tragedy to be grieved? So, so one thing I'm learning, and I mean learning, not learned, is that we have such a tendency to mislabel completely valid parts of the human experience in our emotional lives. I went to therapy for something much less traumatic. I got kicked out of a church. And I would talk about it in clinical detail to my therapist, and she said, yes, but how does that make you feel? I was like, well, I just, I just told you the mechanics of what happened and my unpleasant physiological reactions that I'm trying to eliminate, so can we just get to that? She said, no, 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 no. How does it make you feel? I hated that question. I'd say, well, if I, if I think about that, I feel this, I don't know, it feels like a lead balloon in my stomach that might be full of lava. It's very difficult to articulate effectively. She said, what if you didn't articulate it effectively? It's like, you're a terrible person. <laughs> what do you want me to do, like scream or cry? And she says, why not? I said, because those are really unpleasant, wasteful feelings. She said, why are they unpleasant or wasteful? I said, well, they, they're unpleasant because they're literally unpleasant to experience, and they're wasteful because when you get done, nothing's happened. You haven't accomplished anything. Well, what do you know? I just like externalized my internalized evangelical framing of these experiences. You should be in grief. You should have bad days that is normal, that is healthy, that is appropriate. That is a sign that you are alive. So if you can, and in my opinion, the best way to do this is in conjunction with a licensed professional, 
start to reframe grief as a normative and appropriate part of your life, if, if you learn to f- let that briny river flow, you may find on the other side is a cleansing, or you may not. It may be the life experiences you've had mean that you don't have situational depression. You might be struggling with clinical depression. And if that's the case, there may be additional interventions required in conjunction with a mental health professional. But the the feelings are okay. Now, in terms of the afterlife stuff, terrible news. I don't have a clue what happens when we die. I haven't died. And all of my friends who've died have not been courteous enough to return from the death and reply to me an account of what's happened. Now, there are certainly accounts in Scripture, both the Christian Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, and of course, conflicting accounts in other religious traditions about what happens after we die. I always think about it like this. I love this Jesus character in the New Testament. He mainly talked about what happens in our lives when we follow the way. And then kind of Paul comes along and Hellenized theology comes along and we get these Greco-Roman conceptions of eternal afterlife. And I used to obsess about that stuff. But I was actually really comforted by my very genuine experience as an atheist when someone once told me, well, how unpleasant was it before you were born? Well, gosh, I was fine before I was born. I don't remember anything. I didn't experience anything, but it was fine enough. So like the scientist in me thinks like it's very likely that after we die, there's nothing. And I'm pretty okay with that. But then I have this weirdo, mystic, religious experience, an ongoing religious experience wherein when I turn inward in meditation, where through worship experiences I encounter this transcendent light, gosh, it would be awfully nice to have some reunification or some, in, some more enduring experience that way after I die. And I'll be thrilled if I encounter God or indeed a risen Christ on the other side of death. It's like one of the three <laughs> cognitive pillars of religion is the bias of homo sapiens to not be able to contemplate their own mortality. Oxford studied this. That's one of three things that create religion is the idea we can't imagine our consciousness ending, and so we're drawn to mythologies that answer the question of what happens when we die. But I've found tremendous freedom as a Christian in holding the afterlife question with an open hand, and I can only do that because I've learned to grieve and fully grieve. Because scientifically we understand that grief is a persistent separation anxiety that can't be resolved, right? We're a social species, and we get really freaked out when we can't be near someone we care about. Well, boy, death makes it very effective that we can't be near someone we care about, and our brains continue to long for that sense of connection, So now imagine what happens. Your condition in a faith tradition where it's okay, we'll be in heaven one day. We don't have to grieve right now. And you attach that and repress a separation anxiety. You lose this theological certainty over here, and what's left? A deep well in your soul of unprocessed grief.
I think these things are totally related, but I'm also a community college dropout. <laughs> so I would, I'd strongly encourage you to talk in a professional, private setting with someone far more qualified than me. But I do want to say, as someone intimately familiar with the taste of shotgun barrels, that I'm glad you're here and glad you didn't pull that trigger. And that if at any point you feel that dark or that low again, know that you are not just accepted, but wanted and needed in this life, and that you are not a burden on anyone. We're glad you're here. Go ahead. You, you certainly earned it. Okay. Um, I'm Evan from Cincinnati, and uh, my question is, I have a smartphone. Uh, I'm on it a lot, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not addicted. I can stop whenever I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for all those people who are addicted to their cell phones, what makes the smartphone and social media so addictive to the human brain? Okay. The first thing I want to clarify is so often in our culture, uh, we'll overuse the word addiction. Addiction has a specific diagnostic criterion. Addiction creates dependency and withdrawal. Now, I certainly think there are people with smartphone addictions. I think they are relatively rare compared to people who struggle with smartphone compulsions. What's the difference? Addiction, again, withdrawal, dependence. Compulsion, just a lack of behavioral control. I have very few addictions, and man alive do I have a lot of compulsions. Pizza, (laughs) compulsion for me. I can be on a very strict diet. I can be having great success. I can be feeling great about myself. I can go to a place where pizza is being served. I can eat 14 slices in five minutes. (laughs) That's not really even an exaggeration. (laughs) It's a compulsion. I'm not addicted. When I don't eat pizza, I don't experience withdrawal. I, I don't go to a low emotional state. I don't start vomiting. I don't have withdrawal symptoms from pizza. Um, I mean, I guess I do miss it. It's pizza, but <laughs> it's a compulsion. So smartphones are, well, like we're designed in a lab to engineer compulsions. And the way we're understanding this happens is um, all compulsions start with habit formation or being habitual, where you have some sort of an environmental cue that when you respond to it, gives you a reward, right? So if you have a rat in a lab and he presses a lever and he gets a treat, it's not going to take very long for lever punching to be a compulsion. My friends (laughs) back home in L.A. uh, trained their dog to ring a bell and the dog would get a treat, and now their dog, Nessie, just all the time, ding, 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 looks back, ding, ding, ding. Like, it turned out to be, like, not as cute as they thought it would be. And that's what Google and Apple and Facebook and Twitter are doing in your pocket. 
they're giving you a lever that gives you a treat. Only this treat isn't calories, it's socialization. Well, congratulations, social primates. You love socialization. You love to feel like you are admired and respected and known by your peers. And so every time mm, happens, there's a potential reward on the other side of the mm, right? Internet, you can't see. I'm touching my smartphone in my pocket. They're listening. I apologize. So when you have a potential reward that's unknown, that's actually more powerful in creating a craving than a known reward. Like you might pull out your phone and Bank of America says you got a bill due. Oh, man. But that you don't, the reason you don't just like get trained to not like your, your smartphone because a lot of time it's that person you knew in third grade liking that picture on Instagram. And you go, yeah. So that's dopamine. Dopamine, people think of it as like a reward neurotransmitter. It's more of a craving neurotransmitter. And man, do smartphones and social media put your dopamine production on overdrive. So the next thing you know it, this becomes your primary means of social interaction, which gives you, uh, it's like trying to stay alive by eating graham crackers. There's nothing wrong with graham crackers. They're like kind of sweet and kind of meaningless, just like social media. <laughs> but there's no nutritional substance to them. You can starve to death or you at least die of malnutrition eating nothing but graham crackers. And that's what we're doing. Uh, researchers are uncovering something that they've called the Instagram effect, which I'm sure Facebook is thrilled about, <laughs> wherein people spend less time with other people but more time on their smartphones, and they go out less often, but when they do, they only post pictures of themselves having a great time. So everyone on Instagram sits alone at home watching their friends have a good time, thinking they're the only ones sitting at home, when in fact it is it's just all your friends aggregating their occasional outings. This is bad enough for boomers, Generation X, and for millennials, but for post-millennials, this is such a pronounced effect that they are the most depressed, anxious, and suicidal generation in American history. So smartphone compulsion is not just a hashtag first world problem. This is something, in my opinion, that's a significant threat to human flourishing. So here's what I recommend, and this is based on pretty good science. I've got this memorized. You may hear this in an upcoming book by an author who I'm very fond of <laughs> standing on this stage. So <laughs> turn all the alerts off, all of them. If you go on my phone, notification center, it's a wasteland. It's a graveyard. What can notify me? Phone calls. Phone calls can notify me. My bank can notify me because if someone steals my information, I want to know. And frankly, the bank doesn't bother me very often. That's it. There's no other notifications on my phone. So I've completely lost the mm, cycle. If I want to check out Facebook, I got to literally go check out Facebook, which means I do that like twice a day, three times a day. I get on Twitter more because I really like the 140 character thing. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I schedule through my day times when I'm on my smartphone. And when I'm not on my smartphone, I do this weird thing. I physically take it out of my presence. So when I sit at my desk, my smartphone's in my bedroom. What if I miss a text? Who cares? 
When does something important happen over text? What if somebody calls me? They can leave a voicemail. I'll call them back. It's no big deal. Believe it or not, humans lived on earth for hundreds of thousands of years, not only without smartphones, cell phones, but without phones at all. It's no big deal. You don't need the phone. I'm I'm pretty strict. Um, In the evening, a little before dinner time, I take my phone and I put it on my nightstand, and we just do phone-free evenings as a family, which creates quality time. And like with my kids, I de-emphasize digital relationships, and because I know my children's generation struggles with in-person social interaction, they have an unlimited budget. I will always say yes if a friend can come over or you can go to a friend's house. Guaranteed. Highly encouraged, even if you haven't done your homework yet. If you want to go to a friend's house, I trust you to do your homework later. Because this compulsion we're seeing through digital media, and this is research-based. I don't think it's paranoia. I don't think it's being a, a Luddite, Luddite, however you say that word, Eagletarian. Um, <laughs> I think this compulsion is, is really a significant threat to mental health on a broad scale. And it's kind of destroying democracy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Hi, Mike. Um, I was just wondering if you could speak briefly about the uh, whatever potential of risk you see in artificial general intelligence or artificial superintelligence, and what the tech community or society at large should be doing in the meantime. Okay. You remember earlier when I welcomed those of you who've never heard of me, and I said I'd like to apologize, welcome to the deep end of the pool. Now you know why. If you haven't been grappling with the questions of artificial general intelligence versus artificial superintelligence, clearly you're not taking your faith seriously. Um, <laughs> that's facetious. I'm, I'm lovingly sarcastic. Okay. Let's unpack those terms. You know what artificial intelligence is? That's when computers think. And today, artificial intelligence is what uh, AI researchers would refer to as artificial narrow intelligence. They're really good at one thing right? Deep Blue was great at chess, and only chess. Beat Gary Kasparov, who was the grand champion of chess at the time. I think that's what you call the main chess person. Uh, Watson was really great at Jeopardy. He beat that guy Ken. I mean, that's serious business. And then Watson learned to diagnose illnesses, which Watson is either competitive with or better than human doctors, depending on the study. But Watson can't play tennis at all. In fact, uh, there's a game I play called Star Trek Bridge Crew. It's a VR game. I'm such a nerd. <laughs> and you, you can have Watson listen on behalf of your virtual crew if you're playing single player. And it turns out Watson's pretty terrible at playing Star Trek Bridge Crew. Right? Great at Jeopardy. Terrible helmsman on the Enterprise. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This is really a thing I do. Um, So general intelligence is when AI can just do whatever people do. Just do lots of different things with no training. And that's a fundamentally different thing than um, narrow intelligence. General intelligence just can do whatever. 
Superintelligence, AI, ASI, artificial superintelligence, is when AI can do anything and is way smarter than people. Maybe that's ridiculous. Could machines be smarter than us? Well, we've seen in artificial narrow intelligence, at narrow tasks, they can be much more intelligent than we are. Um, a couple examples. There's a game called Go, which uh, is a game from uh, Eastern culture that has more possible moves than there are atoms in the universe, which is to say many. <laughs> and so unlike a lot of games, Go, you can't win by just playing every possible move or a lot of possible moves. It's a very intuitive game. And so a company called DeepMind, which is owned by Google, created software that taught itself Go strategies by watching people play and then by playing itself. And Go was considered like after chess, like the next step in, oh my gosh, computers are about to take over the world. And we thought it could be, you know, maybe a decade or more until that happened. And then Google kind of figured out this self-learning machine learning system and uh, AlphaGo trounced the best players in the world. Now here's the thing, AlphaGo didn't learn from first principles. It didn't just learn the rule of the game. It had to watch more games of AlphaGo than any person has ever played to get good at it. So Google took that as a challenge and created a new version of AlphaGo called AlphaZero, which only got the rules of Go, and then it got to play against itself. And AlphaZero beat AlphaGo, which was already unbeatable by people, and it beat it so handily and so radically that Go players are now studying AlphaZero's tactics to make humans better Go players. But Google wasn't done. They said, well, let's teach uh, AlphaZero chess. It wasn't designed to play chess. It was just designed to learn games from first principles. So they didn't let AlphaZero watch a single game of chess. They just let it play itself for four hours. Now, Alpha Go, the old version, it spent months machine learning. Alpha Zero spent four months studying, or excuse me, four hours studying the game of Go by itself and then beat every chess algorithm in the world. And again, it was so bold at chess that chess masters are studying it because it approached the game of chess in a fundamentally different way than has been normal in chess for hundreds of years. It didn't care about the inventory of pieces on the board. It was ruthless about achieving a superior position and so clever, computers that people can't beat couldn't beat it when it played so aggressively. So, this is still a narrow intelligence, but it's a lot less narrow. Any game that has a fixed set of rules where you can see all the pieces in play, give it a few hours and Alpha Zero will be the best at it in human and machine history. So the idea here is what happens when computers can modify their own intelligences. The theory being computers are very fast, they're not constrained by the energy limitations of biological computing like we are, they could go from quite dumb to as smart as us 
to as smarter than us as we are smarter than an ant in a matter of hours or weeks. And people go, oh my gosh, it's terrifying. Except there's a reason we're afraid of human intelligence. Humans are the most violent animals in evolutionary history. We're terrifying. The second most aggressive species of primate in the world is the chimpanzee. And for chimpanzees to go to war, they do wage war, by the way, they have to feel like there's a big difference in the population sizes, right? So if you've got two-to-one odds, let's do this, right? Homo sapiens will take a 2% difference and go to war, which is almost mutually assured destruction, by the way. We're incredibly aggressive. So you should be afraid of human intelligence. There's no reason to think AI, should it ever become super intelligent, will have any animosity towards us. There is a fear it has utter indifference to us. <laughs> That's the stuff that scares me. It's not the Terminator marching in a war against humanity. It's, uh, you know, we tell an AI to solve global warming. And an AI goes, okay, main carbon emitters are people. This seems really easy. Uh, not sure why you built me, but I think I'm going to destroy you in like four hours. So early lunch today. Um, I'm kidding. AI doesn't eat lunch. So that's the fear. So that's why people like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk uh, think that there needs to be tight regulation on AI development. That gets into something called the, uh, the, the prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma is if two people have a potential reward, they can either split it. Like person A, can, say that it's $20. I can have $20, and I can give you whatever amount I want. Person B can either take it or leave it. You would think the ideal thing would be I'm going to keep $10, give you $10. We each are guaranteed to get $10. Bucks, but people don't play that way, right? People didn't do, I'll give you a dollar. I'll give you $3. And the other person says, fine, forget you. We're both getting nothing. Yeah, so if AI is indifferent to us, uh, it's not going to like play the prisoner's dilemma with us. It's not going to evaluate like potential risk reward. It's just going to go mindlessly towards achieving its vision, which by the way, it's already doing. How's the stock market? That's what happens when the AI just is achieving an objective. My job is to maximize the value of my portfolio at the expense of the entire market. So we don't have human psychological factors driving the stock market. We have small patterns of a tiny number of human traders being interpreted by super intelligent AIs and acting at a speed that we can't possibly fathom. And everybody goes, where'd the money go? And so, prisoner's dilemma, what happens when someone realizes they could get ahead by ignoring the conventions of AI development? It means then the bad actors are the one that produce AI. So, am I troubled? Kinda. On the trajectory of things that are existential threats to the human species currently, AI is like page five, right? Climate change rampant ethnic populism, democratic decline, hyper-predatory capitalism, 
nukes. These are all page one concerns to me. AI hasn't made it to page one yet, but I guess to the point of your question, AI could go from page 30 to number one in about 20 minutes. Mike, my name is Drew. I'm the uh, university pastor at Capital University in Columbus, not too far from here. Uh, so I work at the intersection of spirituality and academics. So I'm really curious or interested in those people that you are reading who are either scientists, who some of the spiritual people in your life are saying, like, that's accessible, or that's interesting, or that's intriguing. Or on the flip side, who are the theologians, the spiritual teachers, the, oh, the other people who, you, who you're scientists, the people that you respect, the, the physicists, the quantum mechanics, those kind of people, that they're looking at the theologians or the spiritual teachers and saying they're on to something because they see their work coming closer and closer to that thin space where it makes sense to one another. So if you have any of that so I can give it to my students, that'd be great. I mean, I really like pizza. <laughs> and I'm super into brownies. But I don't put brownies on pizza. I think there's like a disservice that happens to science when we try to make it theology's handmaiden or cheerleader. Uh, I prefer to let science be what it is, uh, a methodology of uncovering facts about the physical universe with a lot of fidelity, accuracy, and certainty. You know, I didn't say proof. Science doesn't prove things. They only prove things in math or axiomatic systems, which science is not. Science is about assigning confidence to a belief through observation. Now, that observation can be of the natural world, meaning you don't have to have repeatability, or it can be through experiment, which provides repeatability. So I'm just into scientists who are good at that. There's a really troubling thing for me among theologians to like murder quantum physics in service of fancy sounding theology books. I'm sure that's going to be really popular. No email coming in on that, that comment. Um, and then there's like theologies that like light me up. Like I, I used to, if you listen to the show, you know, for years I called theology fan fiction. You know what fan fiction is? People love Harry Potter so much they write their own Harry Potter story. Doesn't mean Harry Potter exists. That was my theology joke. Uh, ooh, wow, that was culturally resonant uh, here. Okay, so I no longer call theology fan fiction as much. And um, that's because I found theologies I liked. Like Liberation theology, when we interpret and interrogate the Christian Bible and the Hebrew Bible through the lens of oppressed people being freed through human action under divine inspiration, can I get a amen, right? Can I get a, can I get a hashtag me too, hashtag church too, hashtag Black Lives Matter? That's the gospel to me, folks. That'll light me up like a Christmas tree. That doesn't have a dang thing to do with quantum physics. That has to do with the power of theological beliefs to be uniquely emotionally resonant in this species. 
So when we try to make theology just like another way of understanding the physical world, I kind of get bored because science is already better at that. But when we use theology as a means for interrogating the human condition, when we use theology to grapple with our tendency to not look up at the sky and just say, how are those stars there, but do they mean anything? Now I get excited. That means for me today, my favorite theologians tend to be minorities, women, people of different gender identities, people of different sexual orientations. Why? Because man, straight white dudes have had a good run in theology. (laughs) It's been a long time. You go into that bookstop and it's all Dutch white dudes and German white dudes. And that's great. The enlightenment. Wow. So exciting. I think we've just like, it's a well that we're just, we're pumping too hard. Meanwhile, there is such fertile material across human culture and human identity. So I, I, I like love the question and I have friends who could give you like 30 books off the top of their head. But I just let my theology be theology. I am a scientific person, but I also have this weird thing. I like the Bible just as much as I like the Harry Potter series. And actually today I read the Bible more. And it's because I like a story of a people who are constantly being conquered, searching for redemption. I like a book that says, if you've got a lot of wealth and you're hoarding it and delighting in the demise of the poor, you're missing the point. But I always have to remember, and this is a theological claim, not a scientific one, that as I read biblical narratives, I'm a Babylonian or a Roman and not a Jew. Nobody is oppressing me, folks. Doesn't happen. I'm a straight white Protestant in America, and I'm middle class. I'm not, I'm not the poor, so I'm not being like systematically extracted for wealth, and I'm not the wealthy, so I'm not an easy punchline. I'm not an easy group to go against. I'm in that, that beloved American dream in the middle where I'm okay as long as the next paycheck comes in. Because there's a lot of people who aren't okay even when the next paycheck comes in. There's a lot of people, there's very few people, but they don't care if the next paycheck comes in. But I'm in a system that is powerful. America is far more powerful than Rome could have ever imagined. So we do a strange thing with our theology when we imagine America is Israel in the first century. I think if you, if Jesus like came here tonight, like in this room, like we drove him here, first he'd be like screaming in Arabic, like what is this device? Um, <laughs> sorry. Like, I know that if you're new, that's too far, but I, that, I just felt it. It felt good. This is literally the guy who's my best friend. Cut, cut me a break. So, 
if you were to come here tonight and we were to learn about America and hear about like the American church taking on this story of oppression and exile, you know what I mean? He'd probably be like, I'll be right back. I'm going to a black church. Um, you guys need to read about how the centurion reacted to me. And I just don't get that from the intersection of science and theology. I get that from the intersection of lived human experience and theology. And I think that's the most beautiful thing theology can do for us. I am Aurelia, and my question is, have you considered the th one of the theories in string theory where it is possible that we are in a simulation, therefore the theories of the origin of life and the possible universes are also simulated. <laughs> All right. Let's do a little catch up for the folks at home. String theory is short for superstring theory is an attempt to mathematically solve the biggest problem we face in physics, and that problem is the two best systems for describing physics today do not agree with one another. At large scales, Einstein and both general and special relativity do a great job of explaining light speed and gravitation and space and time and everything that happens at scales far larger than the human experience. Of course, good old Isaac Newton has done pretty well at the scale of human experience. After he invented calculus as a teenager, <laughs> because no math existed to describe his understanding of physics, his kind of hell stood the test of time at human level events. Proven wrong at the level of relativity, also proven wrong at things smaller than atoms, what we call quantum dynamics. Here's the problem. The standard model of physics, which is the best way we have to understand tiny things, does its job by pretending gravity doesn't exist. Small problem. <laughs> we are relatively confident that gravity exists. While on the other hand, relativity is, man, it is bad ass at gravity. That's kind of its jam. Like gravity and, and, and the constant of light speed are sort of, it's like its whole dog and pony show. But it kind of just ignores quantum phenomena completely. You know what I mean? So imagine, and this is a stretch, I'm not a sports person, but let's imagine that this was the offense and defensive groups. I don't know what they're called. <laughs> In a football team, what do you call the two? Unit, the offensive and defensive units, thank you. <laughs> I told you it was out on a limb. So the defensive strategy, all their playbook operates by pretending you can't pass the football. It would work a lot. Anytime there was a running play, for example, or a kicking play. No problem, defense got you covered. But every time the quarterback does one of these, they go, son of a gun, what's happening? <laughs> and then the opposite's true over here. Um, so super string theory was an attempt to mathematically integrate these two schools. 
And there are, unless I'm mistaken, five major schools of string theory, which were then united into a larger meta-theory called uh, brain, membrane theory, B-R-A-N-E, brain theory, which I'm not even going to touch with a 10-foot pole because I've already lost 75% of the room and 80% of the people on the subway. So, what I'm telling you is this super string theory is amazingly mathematically elegant and has absolutely failed at finding any real-world evidence to support its predictions. That's how science works, by the way. If you want to have a big theory, you have to create a model that describes what we can already see and predicts what we haven't seen yet. Einstein nailed that. So did the standard model, which predicted, among other things, the Higgs boson. Okay? Einstein predicted uh, the orbit of Mercury and gravitational lensing. Don't worry, that's just for you Googlers. There's another attempt to describe the universe distinct from string theory called simulation theory. And simulation theory is the idea that if it's possible to simulate a universe computationally, it's very unlikely that we're the first universe and therefore we're probably a simulated universe. So the idea there is we're software. So then God would be what? A programmer. Now hold on. Don't tell me the last few years don't make a little more sense. <laughs> if God's a 14-year-old super intelligent alien who got bored with the game. <laughs> you ever play a game, it's going well, you're kind of bored, you're like, you know what? Disaster, disaster, disaster. So, I'm not actually a simulation theory supporter. I was for a while, um, until we started to realize, as far as we can tell now, we would need a computer larger than the observable universe to simulate the number of electrons in a glass of water. So there's this little small scale issue. I'm not sure the basic premise that it's possible to simulate a universe like ours holds up. However, if we are a simulation, kind of all bets are off in terms of like how the universe was created or however it was simulated to exist. But that creates kind of a, a weird sort of nihilism where it's like, what if the simulation just started now and everything before that was just data in the startup file? Like the screen was loading and the universe started mid-question, like we didn't exist three seconds ago. In fact, this still doesn't exist and we only exist now. That's no way to live. <laughs> you just walk around all the time waiting for the universe to start, which is a really strange sensation. So it's a compelling idea. Um, I'm honestly not that compelled by string theory. We got to get something out of a particle accelerator. I'm a little concerned with the way that science is becoming a theology. Well, this should make sense. I think this sounds good. Let's call it science. Nope. Science is based on observation and evidence, and string theory so far has completely struck out. I'm being pressed into service by my daughter here. 
She has a question. If she wants to ask, she's free. No, nope, too <laughs> no. much. I understand. <clears throat> if, if there are aliens, do you think that they worship the same God we do? Oh, wow. Killer question. I'm almost certain there's aliens. The universe is pretty big. Light travels a little over 186,000 miles per second, pretty quick, and a light year is the distance that light can travel in a year going 186,000 miles per second, and the observable universe as we understand it is a sphere of about 40 billion light years. There's upwards of 400 million stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, advances in science are letting us realize that the vast majority of those stars have planets. So it seems statistically likely that there are other planets in our galaxy that are just as prime for the development of life as ours. And oh, by the way, there's not just the one galaxy in the universe. In fact, there's more galaxies in the universe than there are stars in our galaxy. And we have no reason to believe that are just not as populated with planets as the stars in this galaxy. So I think it's very likely that there's aliens. Now we ask, would they worship the same God that we do? Maybe. One thing to think about, though, I'm not sure everyone in this room worships the same God, and I'm relatively certain that not everyone in this city worships the same God. And I think that's okay, which is a strange thing for a person who identifies as a Christian to say. But I think if we study the science as we understand it of how our universe came to be, what we see in the very beginning is a beautiful mystery that everything that is, everything we can see in the biggest telescopes in the world once existed in something smaller than a sugar cube, a sugar cube which may or may not have even had time inside it as we understand it. This infinite energy compressed almost infinitely with the potential to produce everything that is. How beautiful. How divine. But whatever that was, and whatever makes the particles we understand today dance in and out of dimensions as we understand them, whatever it is that allows an electron in my nose for moments be in the center of the sun before returning, Whatever incredible mysteries underlie those things and coalesce in such a way that I can hold a cloud of energy boundaries by a hand and we can walk across the park together and one part of the universe that came from that sugar cube is me and another part is my daughter. The same mystery that let the universe expand from that sugar cube also allows me to love my daughter 
and for her to love me. And it's unspeakable. And so I'm at a point in my life where I'm just comfortable with however someone wants to describe that mystery, however it makes them feel alive and awake and excited to face another day, which sometimes our days are difficult. So whether aliens name a God as I do, whether they believe in a Jesus or not, they're animated by the same mystery. They're part of the same universe, and I believe are therefore worthy of being known and loved and appreciated. So whether they believe in God like I do or not, my belief in God leaves room for me to love them. That's a great question. Thank you. Hi. Hi. I don't have any kids, but a lot of my friends have kids. And I'm curious what tools you have given your kids um, regarding exploring their faith. And I guess part B of my question, what have they given you as you explore your faith? Wow. These are the toughest questions for me. This is like the, the private label reserve stuff of my life. In our house, questions are not allowed, they are celebrated. Vulnerability and honesty are our highest moral values. So, when my oldest daughter came to me one day and said, Dad, I don't know if God is real or what happens when we die. I said, that's great, let's talk about it. What do you think? And I didn't come with like a pre-compiled script of solutions to messy problems because my goal is not to get my children to be photocopies of my faith system. My job is to prepare my children to navigate on the world, in the world on their own and to continue to do so after I'm gone. So, uh, when they're little, we talked about prayers every night and stories from the Bible because that's the story of our people, and it's fine to have a story of your people. I think a big problem in America is the way we have erased our individual cultural identities. And so, me reclaiming my cultural identity partially also means reclaiming Christianity. But when kids have more analytical capacity, they demonstrate that with questions. So when first they ask, Dad, what do you believe? What do we believe? And you tell that. Then they say, why? You tell that. And then they they ask a really key question. Well, what do other people believe? And now this is a key moment because you can either set up other belief systems as enemies of the one true way of living or ways that other people see things. One of these roads tends to lead to fundamentalism and the other does not. And having been grievously injured by fundamentalism, I was not terribly interested in leading my kids into fundamentalism. So that's kind of been the system, and that's led to a situation where I get much more spiritual insight from my children than vice versa. Um, My youngest daughter's name is Macy. I'm a big fan of alliteration. 
So I would call her my Macy, because M sound, M sound, you get the picture. And one day she said, Dad, I'm not your Macy, I'm Macy. Nine. And I thought about the degree to which I was enculturated to assume parents had ownership of their children and found her rebuttal immensely satisfying. I said, you're right, you're not my Macy, you're just Macy. My oldest daughter, Madison, came to me and said, Dad, why do we think so much about what happens when we die, when people die of hunger every day? And I thought that was a really good question. So my philosophy on parenting is the same as my philosophy on relationships and human life in general, that the road to madness and misery is an attempt to control the beliefs, thoughts, and actions of other people. You can't, why try? You can't control anything. So I surrendered the idea of controlling my children and instead am committed to journeying alongside them as they embark on their own journey and adventure in life and in faith. If my daughters become atheists or Buddhists or New Age spiritualists, oh man, I can't believe I'm going to do this. I don't care as long as their lives are animated by the greatest two commandments. I guess I do have a theological dogma, and it is love and be grateful for the miracle that we are here and how we came to be so, and love your neighbor as yourself, which means a life well lived is a 60-year-plus struggle with a single question, who is my neighbor? So there's verse, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It seems like a very binary supposition that, you know, call it absolute truth, that it's this or the other, and it throws out kind of a lot of, you know, you know, other religions, and even, like you, you mentioned about, like, different, not everyone here believes in the same God or worships the same mm-hmm. God, even if we even claim, claim to be Christians. So when Jesus says, I'm the way the Father, no one comes to, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no, no one comes to the Father except through me. Do, first of all, do you le- believe in that binary supposition? And if so, like, what is the through me mm-hmm. in yeah. your eyes? Great question. Uh, so that we do a terrible thing in America where we just kick the crap out of the Bible. And we do that by pretending the Bible is a modern document written to post-Enlightenment Westerners. So we read it through this individual lens where every you is singular, whereas anybody who knows a lick, and I don't, of Greek or Hebrew or Arabic says that most yous in the Bible are plural written to a people, which gives us a different understanding of sin, by the way. If it's, not, if it's both about personal moral transgression and about societal failure, we won't go there. 
The fact is, the Bible was written before the Enlightenment. Don't know if anybody knew that. Significantly before the Enlightenment. And so when we read the Bible in English as Americans and fail to acknowledge the distance we have between a specific author with a specific agenda writing to a specific audience, we miss the point. And we take incredible subversive truths and reduce them to dichotomies of this or that, us or them, in or out. The fact is, if we have a historical view of that passage, then we would understand that Jesus was not the first person to say that phrase. Caesar was. Caesar claimed to be the way, the truth, and the light. Caesar, I don't know if you know Caesar, in charge of the Roman Empire that kept Israel under the mighty boot of the Roman army. So Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and in doing so says the most politically subversive thing he could say. He said, I'm bringing a kingdom that rules by peace and not the sword. That's a riff on what the Romans were doing. And suddenly, the words of Jesus don't become about an individual acceptance of ideas in order to achieve salvation, which is a very modern Western soteriology or study of salvation, and instead becomes a resistance to the powerful destroying and exploiting the powerless. And I have made a personal decision to follow Jesus into lifting those boots off of those necks. Because who is my neighbor? If we don't take the entire Bible and interpret it through the lens of who is my neighbor, we're literally ignoring the way that Jesus in the Gospels told us to read the whole Bible. Who's my neighbor? And I'm concerned that saying, do you believe in this dichotomy of in or out discourages us from wrestling with the question of who is my neighbor? Because we can say, well, Muslims aren't my neighbor. Iranians aren't my neighbor. Atheists are not my neighbor. Lesbians are not my neighbor. And you know what? Today, a lot of white American Christians would say black Americans aren't my neighbor. And that's not the gospel. Now, for my friends in the room who come from what I would call an evangelical or conservative hermeneutic, let's lay the cards on the table. I read the Bible differently. When I think the Bible was inspired by God, I think in the same way a love song was inspired by a person. I don't think God got a quill or whatever God would write with, wrote it out, and then whispered in the ears of scribes and religious people. I think people had experience with with God and were so moved that they wrote it down. And I think later a lot of those documents got assembled by the church, and we have a Bible. The Bible was produced by the church the church was produced by Christ. So the, th- the, the center and the authority of my faith is a, 
a Christ-centered revelation of the divine which trickles down to the Bible. It means the Bible is actually super useful. Why? Because its humanity is so well illustrates the dilemmas I go through every day. If God is conscious, I assume God is, has relatively few questions, relatively limited confusion. The fact that human authors of Scripture were just trying to figure out what this faith meant brought Paul back for me. Paul drove me crazy with this I permit not a woman stuff. But when I read it in the context of his culture, and Paul wrestling with this core conviction of what is righteousness, he'd come from a pharmaceutical position, and now he encountered a blinding light and had to release his legalism and re-explore everything. That sounds familiar to me. Now, do I think my interpretation of that verse is the right one, or my way of reading the Bible is the right one? No, I think it's my way, because I think we are given or we discover a way of interpreting and interrogating the divine that we need where we are in life. And sometimes that means you're a Southern Baptist, and sometimes that means you're an atheist. And I think you can be on the way either way. And I also understand that me saying something like that can sound to a secularist like me trying to colonize their identity and force them into being (laughs) an undisclosed Christian, and that's not what I mean. What I mean is anyone who is on the search to love their neighbor, we should be working together because there's a lot of people on the side of the road. Hello, uh, my name is Michael, back here. Um, so I work for a nonprofit, and we do therapy with a lot of, uh, it doesn't matter who, but we do therapy. And so the way that we work with our clients is we value vulnerability and we value sort of these, um, I don't know, higher level emotional processing. Those are the skills we use. And then the management of the nonprofit, which I'm like sort of halfway there, treats all the employees based on productivity mm-hmm. and deadlines and numbers. Mm-hmm. And, and so you mentioned earlier that, you know, you've been a manager. And I was curious if there's any research about this, um, oh. sort of what is the best way to manage? Because <laughs> there's this newfound respect for vulnerability, but then it doesn't seem to be making its way to how we actually run businesses. So, Great. Thank you. Uh, hmm. Thought you were going to ask me about my experience being a manager. Glad you didn't. I hated it. <laughs> actually, no, this actually ties on the question, unfortunately. The liturgist as an organization has started to grow, and so we have employees, and we had a staff retreat. And I had, like, panic attacks and anxiety and was, like, openly resentful towards the people on the retreat because I was like, why do we have employees? This is stupid because I had all this like PTSD associated with managing people. So managers are still human beings operating often out of a place of trauma or woundedness or crippling insecurity. We're a performance-oriented culture, and nothing puts it out there like being accountable for the actions of other people. You attach that to research 
that shows power is incredibly psychologically corrupting. When you, when, when you take someone and you give them a position of authority or power over another person, their empathy measurably goes down or is reduced. Their ability to relate to that person as a fellow human decreases over time. Authority is psychologically warping to the human emotional system as we understand it today. So, is it any surprise to me that a nonprofit does an amazing work for its clients, but then reverts to hyper-competitive American capitalism in its function? No, of course not. That's what I would expect. What's the answer? Well, if I figure that out, I'm going to sell a lot of books. (laughs) I don't know. My personal solution is to hold authority at an arm's length and disdain it <laughs> um, at a, an interviewer once from a major American news source asked me what it was like to have such authority among spiritually disenfranchised millennials. I said, I don't have any authority over them. At which point the interviewer debated me about the nature and character of authority. And I said, Well, that would be influence that you're describing. She said, No, influence is different. I'm talking about. So it's a pretty ridiculous interview. (laughs) But I think think if you're in a position of authority and power and you're not reticent about it, you're not self conscious about it, or you're not interrogating yourself about it, you're probably just going to like hurt a lot of people and become something you don't love. Uh, My solution was to abandon a prosperous career to be a podcaster. (laughs) It's probably not for everybody. Uh, So yeah, we're just going to strike out on that question. I can tell you why it's bad. I have no clue how to do healthy management. However, I'll tell you this. Me saying that is going to generate like 40 emails And in a future episode, I'll tell you what I learned. My name is Anna. Um, I'm a family physician and geriatrician and educator in that as well. Um, Your podcast after the election um, basically got me through uh, because I'm also a Christian that believes in social justice Mm -hmm. and racial reconciliation. Um, And I'm also from a family. My father's a coal miner um, and lives in West Virginia. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Are you proud to be a coal miner's daughter? I knew that might be coming. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I, I couldn't Good read one. It. Like it. Um, but I, you know, I was so inspired by what you said about listening. Um, and so I didn't want, I saw a lot of my friends choosing to just separate from their families. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not the solution. Um, but the amygdala kicks in really quick. And a lot of times I've opted out. And I just ask if you have any advice a year out of how to start those conversations, um, if, and especially if they don't come up naturally, but how to start those and engage in those and not step out when it gets hard. Can I just lie down on stage? Would that be okay? <laughs> These put me in a tough spot because I've become aware that my family members sometimes listen to these podcasts. 
and don't love being an example. Um, so let me be honest, I love my family. I love my extended family. Uh, most of my family is on the rural side of the urban-rural divide. By the way, it's not like coastal, not coastal. It's not north versus south. The divide in this country is urban-rural, with the suburbs being double agents. And... Um, <laughs> Sociologically speaking. <laughs> and at first, I had all these really great, charitable conversations with my family about the presidency and why people, so many people were afraid of this president. Uh, and then the media landscape collapsed into a singularity and no one can agree on what actually exists and what doesn't. And my attempts to stand up for justice for marginalized people are interpreted as personal attacks by my friends and family who support this administration. And dialogue has not been particularly fruitful. Because I don't think there was a child pedophilia ring in a pizza parlor, which makes me the enemy. And I really don't deny the humanity or dignity of Trump voters. I honestly do not. I heard a laugh. I earned that. I just think this president is a unique threat to American democracy, which wasn't exactly stellar to begin with. And we've created a landscape, social media being a huge component of creating this landscape, wherein if you can't agree who's the good guy, you can't even talk anymore. Most of my interactions with my family anymore, not my mom, are I say something to the public and my family comments on it publicly, and then my fans viciously attack my family. And then they send me really long, either angry or heart-wrenching private messages that I don't know how to respond to because to give them a good response would take three days, and then they would call it fake news. So, like, the wheels are off the cart. The divide is as deep as it's been since, I don't know, before the Civil War. So how do we right this ship? Like my strategy, which I haven't abandoned, I'm just super discouraged right now. Like here's the life of like a family member of mine. They all live in this county that's depopulating in Florida. So every year, less and less people live in this county. There's very little money. It's actually now, by the numbers, the poorest county in Florida. Okay, so it's the poorest county in Florida. 
and they've lived there their whole lives. They've lived there for generations, and all the jobs are disappearing, and all they hear about is welfare, which they refuse to be on because they don't want a government handout. So they just like literally get hungry or work such long hours that their health fails them. And in some cases, compete to be day laborers against undocumented immigrants. So they're literally, you know, I'm like, well, I love undocumented immigrants. I live in Los Angeles. The tacos are amazing, right? Like just like the most privileged urban perspective on immigration. Well, these services really benefit me. Well, my family's trying to survive. So the trick is where we mess up with the rural divide is saying there aren't legitimate social and economic grievances for these people. Because there are. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about the Trump voter who makes $150,000 and drives a Lexus. I found out recently 48% of the listeners of this program are registered Republicans. So I'm trying to be less vehement about chasing them away with a broom. So I'm not going to say what I was about to say about why that person voted for Trump. But, but among low-income people, true low-income people who are following the right, it's because they actually feel like their way of life is under attack. Who's attacking their way of life? Corporations. Me. I left. My, I left Madison County. Then I left Leon County. And I'm having the time of my life in one of the most liberal cities in America. What did I take with me? All the money I spend all the investment in community, all the work with nonprofits. So my exodus directly contributed to the decline of my entire family. So the trick here has got to be some form of dialogue that's fruitful enough so I can say, listen, and this has happened a couple of times, there's moments of insight where I say, Your plight is not because of black people on welfare, and your plight is not because of poor Hispanic and Latino people fleeing poverty just like you. Your plight is from a system that exploits you and exploits them so the gains go somewhere else, and the only way they can keep picking your pocket is to convince you to fight the other person at the bottom, and not the people at the top. So the way I do that is by having an incredibly fleshed out, documented understanding of American history that I can dole out to people. For whatever questions they have, I can cite my sources, and I can show the way that literally white culture was an invention of southern elites who are afraid that poor whites and poor blacks were starting to live together, and they would figure out where all the cash was. The 1% in the pre- and post-Civil War South was not on Wall Street. It was the landowners in the South. And they had to invent whiteness, a pan-European identity, to avoid the vast majority of people realizing 
they had no stake in the game and they would never be allowed to. Just enough people succeed in order to call this a land of opportunity that benefits the top. I'm, boy, I'm awful, awful on my sleeve with my economic theories here. But that's what we have to do. Is there overt personal racism in my family? Yes. Is there systemic racism in my family? Yes. Does my family have regressive positions on marriage equality? Yes. Why? Because for as long as my lowland Scott northern Irish family fled poverty in Europe to come here for a better life, they've been exploited by the same crew that exploited them in the old country. Only they were taught that they were in the game because they were white, and the problem was people who aren't. That's a very difficult position to hold. By the way, that's an impossible tension for most people of color to hold, because like, oh, you've got it bad. Poor rural whites, you've got it bad. When's the last time a member of your family was executed on the street by police? So then whose job is it to work with my family on these issues? This coastal elite. And I'm terrible at it. And that's my fault. The podcasting stuff is easy. People pay tickets to see me. Honestly. It's incredibly gratifying. I leave exhausted because it's emotionally vulnerable. I stay around and talk to you all for two, three hours afterwards. Have a migraine tomorrow. But I love it. But talking to my cousin about racism and economics and liberation... That's work that actually matters and that I'm just not committed enough to. I'm uh, David from Cincinnati. Um, My understanding of history is that many scientists uh, explored the nature of the world as a way of discovering God, that through the discovery Mm -hmm. of nature and through the discovery of the heavens, uh, that would give them enlightenment to God. I've been reading a uh, a couple of books, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the recent one is uh, Death by uh, Black Hole. Um, But one of the things he talks about in there is the... um, uh, the percentage of, and I could make up a number, I forget what it is, but a low percentage of astrophysicists and scientists who are people of faith, um, which seems very different from the history of what science, uh, is, to my understanding, was. So are the two things mutually exclusive? Can I come to faith through science, or is the depth of science and understanding going to lead me away from faith? And how do, how do we reconcile that? Good question. Statistically, lead you away. (laughs) Just in terms of probability. More scientists today don't believe than do. Now, how much of that is like a a systemic cultural pressure in the academy? Well, I haven't seen research that teases that out or not. I think science can lead you either place. Again, what is science? Tells you about the physical world. So, learning how electrons electron may say, well, there's no, no magic here. This is math. Or it may lead you to go, what elegance, what beauty. 
And that's a, like an emotional, psychological reaction that I don't think is inevitable in either term. There was a time when science uh, put the final nail in the coffin of my faith, uh, but I would be dishonest if I didn't say that, that science was a major animating factor in my not only beliefs about God, but my desire to follow anything I would call God. I don't think those are set in stone. I think there's, it's going to be an intersection of your life experience and your propensity to wonder. I was reading a study recently that basically showed like the um, relative bias or activity between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system led you to have a more sunny or less sunny disposition, regardless of like what your life circumstances are, and that sunny disposition is also highly correlated with having um, a faith-based outlook on phenomena. So like what science does to you may have to do largely with the relative balance between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. That's what, that, this is what I mean when I say we all understand the world differently for a reason. We're all just trying to navigate from our own perspective. And I used to be afraid of that, and now I think it's beautiful because I think the more voices in the chorus of seeing and knowing and feeling and thinking that I encounter, the more I hear God, right? Like this symphony of experiences. I mean, the, like the most spiritual moments I have anymore are great films. Great films. There's this movie, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. You seen it? My wife saw it. She's like, you like that? <laughs> oh, I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. Because in the face of futility, meaning was found in community. And that was a note I needed that week. Yeah, so I don't, I don't think it's baked into, the, baked into the recipe. I think it depends on the chef. My name is Michael Allen Simon. I am 13 years of age and single, and I'm never going to mingle. <laughs> um, what's your opinion on Sigmund Freud's uh, position on suffering and how it can make us an eth- uh, a more valuable person in ethics and religiousness? Hmm. So you're a Freudian. It's making him quite a comeback. Have you noticed Freud? People are getting real into Freud again. Um... Wow, things I didn't expect to say in 2018. The Freud resurgence. Um, I think Freud has some workable theories. I think he's really obsessed with genitals. (laughs) Understandably, we are primates. Primates reel into genitals, just YouTube it, it's disturbing. (laughs) I think somebody was thinking of a specific video and not a family video. Anyway, I'm probably uh, more of a Frankel guy on suffering. Frankel's thing is suffering ceases to be suffering in the context of meaning and the transformation of suffering 
to meaning produces work and empathy, right? So Frankel's work was born out of being in a concentration camp, trying to keep other people in concentration camp, trained psychologists, trying to keep other people in concentration camps from killing themselves. Believe it or not, when you're starved to death and frequently beaten, people get suicidal. And Frankl would say, no, don't kill yourself. Let the Germans kill you because then your death will have meaning. It'll tell the world who the Nazis are. Which, like, if you think about this, it's like a real bummer. Be like, oh, wait, you want to just, like, let somebody kill me and suffer more? But when they found this animating energy of a death that would testify to the world of this brutality, what do you know? Suicide rates went, just dropped under, for people under Frankel's care. We're a strange species. We'll face death calmly and with dignity if we believe our death has meaning. I am not aware of another species that does that. So I don't, I don't think that, that suffer. I mean, I think, I think to the degree suffering lets us empathize with those who are suffering, it's an aid in ethical considerations. I suffer, I don't want other people to suffer. Then I make moral decisions based on that. Yay. I don't know. I think Freud had a tendency to describe sex, suffering, anger as these repressed fuels of the psychology. And I think that happens. But I think what Freud was describing was the effects of Western philosophy on human cognition and emotions. And then normalizing it and making it prescriptive. And I think, I think Western thought and philosophy is very useful, but I think it has been overemployed to the point that it's detrimental to human nervous systems. We see this literally in brain imaging studies. Um, Western people have an overwhelming left hemisphere bias in almost everything they do. And when we study people who aren't as immersed in Western philosophy, we see a more, not right-brain-centered, but whole, neurologically holistic approach to interpreting the world. And I think Frankel's take on suffering helps us subvert those Western assumptions in a way that's useful. Thanks for listening to yet another week of Ask Science, Mike. If you'd like to bring Ask Science Mike to your community, again, you can learn how to do so by visiting AskScienceMike.com. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for making this show financially possible, Andrew Galucky for his work in pre-production, Greg Nordine for sound design and production, and, of course, Jeb Botterford for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. 